And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Excuse me. Okay, so this week we're going to talk about, about um, why there is no doubt that this is being written about as an actual Passover supper, despite my having taught otherwise in the past. We're going to talk about the Passover elements in this section of Mark 14 and why it was written about this way as opposed to how, say, John wrote about the same event using a slightly different emphasis. Last week, we touched upon the history of the Passover and how it is a huge part of the meta narrative or the overall theme of scripture. And we also looked into what the Passover looked like in the first century and about Justin Martyr's firsthand witness of the crucified lamb of the Samaritan Passover and looked at a great article from a Jewish scholar who believes that it accurately reflects what was going on during the first century when the temple was still standing. And not just among the Samaritans, uh, but among the Jews. And we re we read uh, Mishnah Tractate Pesachim, chapter 10, to see what the take on the Passover meal looked like at the end of the second century. This week, we will put all that knowledge to good use as we explore the setup of the Last Supper. Uh, hi, I am Tyler Don Rosenquist, and welcome to Character in Context, where I teach the ancient historical and sociological context of Scripture with an eye to developing the character of our Messiah. If you prefer written material, I have six years worth of blog over at theancientbridge.com, as well as my six books available on Amazon, including a four-volume curriculum series dedicated to teaching scriptural context in a way that even kids can understand it called Context for Kids. And I have two video channels on YouTube with free Bible teachings for both adults and kids. You can find the link for those on my website. Past broadcasts of this program can be found at characterincontext.podbean.com and transcripts can be had for most broadcasts at theancientbridge.com. If you have kids, I also have a weekly broadcast where I teach them Bible context in a way that shows them why they can trust God and how he wants to have a relationship with them through the Messiah. Now, all scripture this week comes courtesy of the ESV, the English Standard Version, but you can follow along with whatever Bible you want and a list of my resources 
My reading list can be found attached to the transcript for part two of this series at theancientbridge.com. And I apologize again for the sinus thing. I just have to stop and sniff and yeah, <laughs> bear with me. It's, it's all winter kind of thing. Now, of course, the, um, Central theme of the Passover memorial meal, for those of you who observe it, is the retelling of the Exodus story. And there goes my printer going off. <laughs> In fact, um, the gathered celebrants were to relive it and consider themselves to have been personally there and delivered from Egypt. Given that the Jews in the first century were in their own land, but under the thumb of their Roman oppressors who didn't technically hold them as slaves, but had taxed them to the point where they were often just barely surviving. You know, the meal was a political action that was all the more poignant. Truthfully, um, none of the people of this time had ever known what real freedom looked like under their own governing authorities. Big Brother was always watching, and especially at Passover when... You know, Messianic claimants were prone to arise and create a ruckus. Now, ritual in religion is about theater, okay? And don't take that badly. It, and we see it in all the festivals. At Passover, they relived the Exodus. At Shavuot, they had pageantry related to finally being able to reap a harvest in the land. Um... Only after the destruction of the temple was the festival day um, of Shavuot repurposed around the giving of the Torah. Uh, trumpets revolved around the enthronement ceremonies for new kings. At Sukkot, they reenacted living in booths during the exodus in the wilderness. Um, this is um, This is also why Purim and Hanukkah came to be celebrated because they were reenactments and remembrances of great deliverances out of the hands of oppressors. Not to stand alongside or equal to the festivals because there are no high Sabbaths and no one is forbidden to work or uh, commanded to go to the temple. But uh, as reminders that uh, even in the darkest circumstances, God has not abandoned his people. It's never wrong to celebrate the amazing things God's done in your life. I'm going to give you an example. July 2nd every year is Rosenquist Day. Because that is the day that we finalize the adoption of our sons. Um, and it was a, it was miraculous. Let me tell you, uh, it was, it was very difficult in, in a lot of ways. And I have a broadcast on it, actually. But, um, yeah, that's a great deliverance for us. And so um, this section of scripture is all about Yeshua, or you may call him Jesus, presiding over the sharing of the matzah and the third and fourth cup of the Seder and using them to redefine what God's salvation looks like in their generation. You see, at a Seder, it was the job of the host to tell the story. And we've talked about this in the past. No matter where Yeshua is dining, no matter whose house he is in, he always acts the part of the host. Why? Because he is always foreshadowing the messianic banquet at the end of the age. 
And this will actually be our fourth bread-related incident in the Gospel of Mark, unless I've missed one. You know, previously we've had the feeding of the 5,000 in Jewish territory, the feeding of the 4,000 in Gentile territories, and then the brouhaha after the incident, uh, after that incident when the disciples were upset that they'd forgotten to bring bread. And... um the Pharisees were upset um, that Yeshua was, Yeshua's disciples, and Luke says Yeshua as well, were not washing their hands before they ate bread. Okay, so let's go and get started. We are in chapter 14, starting in verse 22 of this very long chapter of the Gospel of Mark. All right, uh, verse 22, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Now, the matzah, or unleavened bread, it's bread without, um, that hasn't been allowed to rise, um, eaten as part of the Passover is in remembrance of the fact that the children of Israel left too early in the day to allow their bread dough to rise. They had eaten, fully prepared to leave, and after Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron to the palace, they were commanded to leave immediately. So the matzah was symbolic of how they were literally slaves one minute and free the next time with no time for fermentation. And it was the job of the host to explain all the elements of the Seder meal, the lamb, the matzah, and the bitter herbs. But Yeshua does something different. He explains the matzah and the wine instead. He very well might have explained the lamb and the herbs earlier. Uh, we don't know. But we do know that he chose to highlight the bread between the second cup, which is called the cup of plagues or, or judgment, and the third cup, which is called the cup of redemption. And he also chose to redefine the third cup. So this is set as they were eating. Yeshua, as host of the Seder, took the unleavened bread and spoke the bracha over it. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he handed it out to everyone who was, you know, as we saw when we talked about this two weeks ago, reclining. Reclining was traditional for Passover, but because it is how free and wealthy men ate their meals, and at the Passover they reclined on their left side, which is anyone <laughs> who has ever had GERD will tell you is much better for uh, digestion. Um, anyway, on Passover night, all of Israel dined like royalty from the richest to the poorest. But this is where Yeshua went off script. Now, remember last week I mentioned that according to Rabban Gamliel, the host had to explain the elements of the Seder. Here, Yeshua is explaining the true significance of the unleavened bread, the matzah. He said to them, take, this is my body, and this is incredibly important. The laws of Passover were very explicit in this regard. Anyone who dined on the old leaven during Passover and not on the unleavened bread was cut off from their people. But now Yeshua is telling them very something very specific. It is the body of Yeshua that they were now to take and even take into themselves. The partaking of Yeshua's body and blood, identifying with him in death and resurrection was now the identifier for who was and was not cut off from the people of Israel. 
Exodus. Remember last week I told you if you if you don't understand the Passover and Exodus and the Gospels, it's very hard to see the meta narrative of Scripture. You have to understand both. Now remember that unlike the Passover itself, which was a day of preparation, the unleavened bread focused on the time after the Passover. The unleavened was about the unleavened bread was about the future and leaving behind the old leaven and starting again. No different than our new creation life in Messiah. And it's stunning that this cultural act of divinely commanded theater would point the way to the true bread of life, that it truly was a shadow of something better and a greater salvation and a greater exodus than they experienced under Moses. Instead of one people group, Yeshua's Passover was aimed at the redemption of the entire world. And I have to say that this is why we should continue to celebrate the Passover and the resurrection that happened on the, the day of first fruits. But, you know, we'll get to that when we get to that. Verse 23. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. Okay, as I mentioned before, this would be the third cup, the cup of redemption. After breaking and eating the matzah, Repeating from last week, all Jews were to enjoy four cups of wine on Passover night, no matter how poor. Yeshua gave the blessing for the wine. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, who brings forth the fruit of the vine. And we know from uh, Mishnah Pesachim 10 that the wine was mixed with water, which is important in John's account. But remember when we were talking two weeks ago about the obligations of loyalty toward anyone with whom you shared the meal verse 23 explicitly says that they all drank of it even judas so here he is eating and drinking in an unworthy manner which should ring a bell because paul warns the corinthian believers about this in uh, chapter 11 uh, verses 27 and 28 first corinthians Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then so as to eat the bread and drink of the cup. So anyone who is dealing treacherously with others in the body, because that is the context of what Paul was saying, it's also the context of the Passover meal, uh, with Judas being treacherous, you know, and then partaking of the bread and wine of Passover or of communion, because they are absolutely linked together, is compared here to Judas betraying the hospitality of fellowship at the Lord's table. Incredibly serious. And it says you will be guilty of the blood and, um, of the body and blood of the Lord pretty scary so uh verse 24 and he said to them this is the my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many now this harkens back to two different concepts in scripture okay first it's an allusion allusion not illusion allusion to the blood of the covenant that moses splashed against the altar and um sprinkled over the assembly of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai in Exodus in chapter 24. 
This blood confirmed the covenant between Yahweh and Israel after preliminary commandments were given through Moses to the assembly and they repeatedly said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And they, they repeated that uh, in Exodus 19.8, 24.3, and 24.7. But instead of the blood of bulls and sheep and goats as were used by Moses and were a shadow of what would come, Yeshua says, this is my blood of the covenant. And instead of being poured out for those gathered around Mount Sinai and their descendants, Yeshua's covenant blood is poured out for the many. And if you listen through my series on Isaiah and the Messiah, your ears should have perked up. Remember, this word in Greece, Greek excuse me, is polis. And in the Septuagint, which is the 3rd century BCE authorized translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, that is the word used to translate Rabim. And Rabim shows up all over the place in the servant songs of Isaiah that refer to the Messiah. Uh, let's look at Isaiah 52, verses 13 through 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Uh, we also have Isaiah 53, verses 11 through 12. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And let's not um, keep from noticing here poured out. You know, you've got this poured out language. So um, Moses led an exodus out of Egypt. But the servant of Isaiah leads a greater exodus. And in fact, Isaiah says that the new exodus would be so amazing that people would hardly even remember the old. All the nations would pour into Jerusalem to honor Yahweh and his house would be called a house of prayer for all nations. The wealth of the nations and their worship would come through the gates in unending tribute. By talking about doing what he is doing for the many, Yeshua is naming himself as the servant of Yahweh in the Isaiah Psalms. The arm of the Lord that the Septuagint defined, identified as the Messiah. Now, we've talked before about acted out parables, and there are many in the Gospels. The overturning of tables in the temple courtyard. For example, was, you know, a unique messianic sign fulfilling passages in Zechariah and Malachi. If we were to do it, it wouldn't mean the same thing at all. 
It was a sign that Yeshua was the Lord of the temple coming in judgment. If we were to do it, it would just be presumptuous and empty. Also, you know, we had the feedings of the multitudes as acted out parables of the giving out of manna in the wilderness, coupled with the messianic banquet imagery at the end of the age. Um, healing the blind is the acting out of Isaiah 9. Washing the feet of the disciples, the great catches of fish. These are all actions that point the way to the fulfillment of something even greater. Um, you know, what do we have here? They all drank the cup. And then Yeshua drops the other shoe. They've just taken part in an acted out parable about what is about to happen. First, they consumed the broken bread, symbolic of what would happen to Yeshua's body. And not just broken, but personally and freely given to them by Yeshua. And then we have the wine, which we know is mixed with water at Seder's. Uh, John 19.34 tells us that when Yeshua's side was stabbed with the spear and blood and water came out, poured out for the many onto the ground, um, as all blood was required to be returned to Yahweh by pouring it out on the ground um, when you're outside the temple. They have all just participated in the suffering, crucifixion, and death of Yeshua in the form of this acted out parable. And uh, this is actually why it's so very important to do this together. This is no pagan ritual. This is participation and identification. Yeshua is recentering, reconstituting Israel around himself and the superior covenant in his blood instead of the blood of animals. And for the whole world instead of just Israel. All right. Uh, verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So Yeshua refuses to drink the fourth cup. And the fourth cup is the cup of praise. But as we will see in the garden, he will be drinking another cup entirely. And that's the cup of Yahweh. I do want to break this down. Okay. Truly, I say to you, all right, that's an oath formula. And you might object because Yeshua seems to forbid oaths elsewhere, but we have to understand how oaths were being abused during this time. And I have a separate teaching on that. It was very much a game in those times to figure out how they could swear a non-binding oath, which of course is just, you know, it's, premeditated deception, right? It's like, how can I say this and seem like I mean it, but not actually mean it? And if somebody tries to call me on it, I say, oh, well, I didn't, you know, say this. Um, no. So it's like, oh, it's like having your fingers crossed behind your back. All right. So he is swearing not to drink the fruit of the vine. And that would be wine or vinegar until that day. But when is that day? And when does the kingdom of God happen? Is this some future thing or is it already here? Uh, we'll talk about that more when we get to chapter uh, 15. Oh my gosh. But uh, let's look at, uh, let's read chapter 20, or <laughs> chapter. 
Verse 26 here really quick, because we're coming up at the uh, at the end of the half hour here. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So that was the end of the Seder for them. Yeshua had um, redefined it. He had redefined the bread, the matzah. He had redefined the wine. Um, he was going to redefine the lamb in a huge way by being the lamb. And um, gosh, it's just such a beautiful picture. People, when they don't keep the Passover as well as we can, you know, when the people don't teach the Passover and understand the Passover, ah, oh, there's just so much you're going to miss. That's why... New Testament scholars, they're also Old Testament scholars. They they study this stuff. And uh, I wish everybody would. I wish scholar stuff would trickle down more into the pews. Anyway, I will be back in just a few minutes. and welcome back to the second half of this week's character and context where we are talking about the um, the Last Supper. Um, what I call the communion and the coming denial. It's, it's a pretty depressing section of scripture, really. But we left off at uh, verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, so the Passover dinner is done now. And um, let's talk about really quick the hymns that would have been sung on the night of the Passover throughout the Seder. Um, it, they were the song. They were Psalms one thirteen to one eighteen, officially known as the Hallel. These are specifically psalms of praise and celebration of deliverance from enemies. I love going through them on the Passover, even though we don't sing them because. We no longer know the tunes that they were originally singing them to, as far as I know. Um, and even if we did, it would only work for the original Hebrew, and everyone knows that I don't speak Hebrew, so there's that. Or Greek. <laughs> but they sing Psalm um, 118, and they head out of the city to the Mount of Olives, which would have been at least a 15-minute walk with the, you know, full stomachs. And, you know, these guys rarely ate meat, okay? It was a rarity within a culture where, you know, animals were primarily wealth and not dinner. If you ate an animal, you know, as a normal person, it was because it was elderly, not a nice, young, tender, grass-fed lamb. So they were, they're still grass-fed, but they just weren't young. So, you know, they're full of protein, carbohydrates, and wine, and it is dark and I am exhausted just thinking about it and on the way Yeshua drops another bomb and I say another because in the account before this one he told them that one of the 12 would betray him and maybe they'd forgotten over the course of the Seder but Yeshua isn't going to allow them to just drift off into a peaceful sleep so you know they're trudging along probably thinking they're on their way to Lazarus's house in Bethany and Yeshua just destroys the festive atmosphere. 
Uh, I'm sorry about my nose here, and and I know I'm sounding more and more hoarse. Um, uh, all winter. Okay. <laughs> Every year. Uh, verse 27, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, when Yeshua told them that one of them would betray him and then narrowed it down to one of the 12, because we know there are more than just 13 of them there because at least two others had gone ahead to prepare the Passover for them. And when he arrived later, all the 12 were accompanying him. They were all... You know, they were all incredulous when when he told them that it was one of the twelve and asking if it was them because, you know, no one immediately suspected Judas, evidently. You know, who knows? Maybe they thought that since they'd, you know, been given a heads up that it wouldn't happen. After all, you know, who would share a table with someone and then do something like this on purpose? It was unthinkable in the ancient world, even though, you know, we do it all the time now because we can't even handle being miffed at a friend who says something stupid. And so we gossip and tear people to shreds behind their back or on social media in full view of the entire world. Um, but this wouldn't have happened in the ancient world. Not when you share table fellowship with someone. It was like an honor pact. Okay. But we have no honor anymore. Um, Yeshua has upped the ante. But we should, okay, have honor. Um, modern kind of honor. Not, not, never mind. But Yeshua has upped the ante. Not only will one of the twelve betray him, but each and every one of them will fall away. And such a statement is just beyond bearing. It was one thing to think that the betrayal might come from one of them under some strange set of circumstances, but this is a guarantee they will all fail to be loyal, courageous, and steadfast. You couldn't hardly deliver more damning news to a bunch of honor-shame society teenagers who were still hoping to be great when Yeshua would become the Messiah, that the kind of Messiah that they want him to be. Um, he's telling them that they're just the worst, and that's how it would have sounded to them. Okay? And the scripture he's quoting from here is um, Zechariah 13.7. So let's look at that in context, starting in verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from all sin and uncleanness. And let's skip down to 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, Yeshua does something incredibly Jewish here and compacts the verse. In Zechariah, the context is clear that Yahweh himself has called down the sword on the man who stands next to him, at his right hand, instead of quoting the entire thing, he just changes it to, I will strike the shepherd, because that is the plain meaning of what came down to us through Zechariah. Um, Yahweh will open up a fountain that will cleanse people from <coughs> both sin and uncleanness, and it will happen through bringing the sword against the faithful servant who also stands by his side and is Yahweh's shepherd. Yeshua is identifying himself as that fountain, 
that shepherd and the man who stands at the right hand of Yahweh. But more than that, if we were to read the very next chapter of Zechariah, we would see that the shepherd is victorious. So, um, many people say that Yeshua never claimed to be the Messiah, but he claims it all over the place without actually saying the word Messiah, and we've talked about why. The word Messiah in the first century became so overburdened with false or premature expectations that he just could not use it. It was a political term that would have raised an army and would have had Rome executing him prematurely without collaboration from the Jewish leadership. It had to go ex down exactly as it did, and so no, he's not going to use the term. Son of man was obscure enough to work and fill with meaning himself, and there was also, like, shepherd, okay? Um, but... I want to also take a moment here to show that the disciples were never expected to stand strong and fight. It's easy to say we would have done differently than these young men, but Zechariah clearly says that if we were there, we would have bolted as well. The only one who didn't run was Judas, okay? Uh, we would have been scared out of our minds, just senselessly confused and terrified, and none of us have lived the life that they lived afterwards. So although we poke at them a bit, we also have to know that we wouldn't have done any better. And if we had, we'd be dead. Okay. When we're learning character from these accounts, it, it all must start from humility. Okay. We are not all that in a bag of chips. And we prove it on a daily basis and sometimes moment by moment. It took the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to change them from violent braggarts and runaways into men who were all willing to die in order to non-violently spread the gospel to the ends of the world as they knew it in those days. And people always say, you know, how do I know that Joseph Smith of the Mormons wasn't a prophet? Well, he died with a gun in his hand, okay? Prophets didn't do that. They didn't die with weapons in their hands trying to kill other people, trying to defend their lives. They just didn't do it, all right? Um, verse 28, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. There's more here than immediately meets the eye. And Peter completely misses it. First, of course, you know, we could see here a fourth passion prediction in his claim of being raised up, and it's the fifth time that he has mentioned being raised up. Although he doesn't specifically talk about being turned over this time, you know, with all the talk this night about being betrayed and abandoned, it isn't hard to put all the pieces together. You can't be raised up unless you've died. But remember, they are all expecting a general, re general resurrection at the end of the age. And although he has mentioned after three days, they don't really seem to be grasping that this isn't just figurative language. But now, you know, this is weird, okay? Who would go before them to Galilee after the general resurrection at the end of the age? Wouldn't they all gather in Jerusalem? But more importantly, I think, okay, and reflective of his merciful character, Yeshua offers them hope and a lifeline here. You are going to abandon me, but I am not going to abandon you. I am going to meet you where you are, in fact, I will be there before you arrive. Man, am I the only person this has been true for? 
He knows that I'm going to screw up. He doesn't treat me like a screw up, but he knows I will. And still he's always there walking in front of me where I need to be before I even get there, you know, leading me on. And back to Galilee, to where it all began. It's like talking about a fresh start. And of course, after the resurrection and the giving of the spirit, the new creation kingdom that was inaugurated at the cross, it was a fresh start. And it still is when we go through it ourselves. And when we sometimes run and, you know, then we turn to find out he was always right there, ready to begin all over again. What's true for the disciples is true for all of us from every denomination for the whole body. We all have this ongoing experience of him shepherding us even when we act more like goats than the sheep we're supposed to be. Which, by the way, sheep should never be used as an insult. The Bible compares us to sheep when we aren't acting like idiots. Just call me a sheeple, fine, I'll take it as a compliment. And I mean biblically, it is, and that should be our standard and not the mockers and name callers on social media who would rather belittle the people they disagree with instead of coming up with more persuasive arguments in their favor based on, I don't know, facts and love. Ah, verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Oh, Peter, 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 Peter. Why did you have to just insult all the others like that? I mean, you know, he could have just said, I will never abandon you, you know? But in defending himself and his own honor, which is exactly what was happening here, and I will explain it in a bit, he threw all the others under the bus. Even though they all fall away, I will not. <sighs> but haven't we all done this? I've told this story before, but... This is the reason why I never say stuff like this anymore. Back about 15 years ago, you know, we just moved into our new house in New Mexico. And you have to understand, I was one of those people who always watched movies or read stories and would see people frozen in fear or not doing what I thought they should be doing and calling them idiots and say, well, I would have done such and such if I was them or I would never have done that because, you know, we all of us have given ourselves way too much credit for not being idiots <laughs> or somehow being above normal human limitations, more loyal, smarter, just whatever. And, and usually about situations we've never been in ourselves and might never be in, probably never be in. And we all assume that we're people who act instead of people who freeze. And, and now we get to the point of my story. The former owner hadn't informed a relative who drives long-distance trucks about the fact that they had moved. And he had a key, and I swear he was six foot four and built like a mountain. And when he let himself in through the garage in the middle of the night, and I heard him and thought it was Mark or one of the kids, and I saw him, I was standing there in my jammies, I froze in place. And not for the last time either. I'm a freezer, okay? So all that. I would never, you know, all, I would never, you know, nonsense, you know. I'm a freezer, not a fighter, just so you all know. Unless somebody else is being threatened and then I get really uppity. I don't know why it's different, okay? <laughs> um, and so, you know, Peter's just doing what we've all arrogantly done, right? 
And it wouldn't be the last time either. I mean, you know, what happened between Acts 10, when Yahweh makes it clear that Peter is not to refuse table fellowship with Gentiles, you know, and Acts 11, when he has to tell the Jewish believers back in Jerusalem that they shouldn't refuse Gentiles at their table, and Acts 15, where we see the we're seeing the fallout from Peter having refused table fellowship with the Gentiles in Galatia. You know, we all think we know what we would do in situations we've never been in. Fear, in the case of the Arrestic Gethsemane and peer pressure in the, in the case of Galatia, can overcome our better judgment. And especially, I believe, you know, when we... Now, I'll, I'll talk about it later. Um, I want to... <laughs> Touch briefly on the wording here. The word used for fall away is scandalizo. And what Peter is saying here is even if all these other guys are too scandalized, too embarrassed, too distrusting to follow you, I won't be. You know, no matter what happens to convince them that they can't trust you anymore, I will never stop trusting and following you. Which necessitates the following prophetic utterance from Yeshua, who isn't playing games with Peter. There's just no time left. Verse 30. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Just, oh, I'm going to tell you something that is a pet theory of mine based on all those times I have said I would never. I honestly believe that when we do stuff like that, we open ourselves up to be tested and sifted and we invite it. I mean, and, and that God allows it to happen. This is what it is. It says Satan has asked you, asked for permission to sift you like wheat. I can't remember which gospel that is in possibly in John. Um, but it's like, there we go. And I, I gave it to him. Okay. It's like, because of this stuff, um, you know, I had to stop talking about all the places I would never move to in a million years after I had to do that four times. It's like, God says, Oh, so you're telling me where I can and cannot send you, huh? Alrighty then. Let's see how you like this. I mean, so now I tell people I would never move to Bora Bora, but I think he's on to me. I just, I don't tell him anymore what he can and cannot do, what I can and can't do, and how I will and will not fail. Just none of it. There's nothing I can positively claim to be capable of or incapable of, good or bad. I'm just keeping my head down and trying to trust in God. If, you know, if I screw up, he can pick me back up. And not focusing on my inevitable failures gives me hope in what he can accomplish. But, okay. Beyond this, Yeshua has just delivered a prophetic utterance, beginning with the oath formula, truly I tell you, which puts his own honor on the line. And this word translated deny is a particularly harsh word in the Greek. Aparnese. It doesn't just mean that you say you don't know someone, it actually carries the meaning of actually disowning that other person. Yeshua's claim on Peter could hardly have been more severe with the wording combined with the oath. How will Peter respond to this? This is Peter's teacher. 
whom he personally identified as the Messiah on Mount Hermon after staking his own honor on the truth of what he was claiming. All right. How Peter responds to this is the first chink in the armor of Peter's professed faith in Yeshua, that at least that I can think of. All right. I'm going to burst a um, popular bubble here. You will hear that this couldn't have been a, you know, an actual cockadoodle-doo rooster because of Mishnah Tractate Baba Kava 7.7, which reads, No cocks or hens must be raised in Jerusalem even by laymen because of the voluntary offerings, which, um, the meat of which may be eaten in any part of the city, and as the habit of named fowl is to peck with their beaks in the rubbish, they may peck into a dead reptile and then peck into the meat of the offerings. That's far-fetched. Okay, I'm just saying right now. In all other parts of Palestine, priests only must not raise them. As they leave offerings for the meals, they must be very careful about cleanliness. Okay, however... People who claim this fail to mention the ruling from the Jerusalem Talmud that clearly states that a chicken had once killed an infant by pecking the soft spot on the top of the child's head. This is in uh, Talmud, uh, the Jerusalem Talmud, Erevin 10.1.5. So, I mean, clearly the idea that there were no fowl raised in the city was not universal or universally understood. And actually, I can tell you personally, sound carries. When I was living out in the boonies, I could hear roosters that were a long ways away, and some of them would sound off long before dawn and even in the middle of the night. I have one across the street in my neighborhood now. Actually, fortunately, he's more polite about it and usually waits until daybreak. Usually. Um, now, the two theories that play on this supposed ban on poultry involve either the Roman soldiers. And by the way, dang, a chicken pecking open the soft spot on an infant's head. What was the infant like doing where a chicken could get to it? That's just nasty thinking, okay? I mean, yuck. Okay. So, um, so these theories involve either the Roman soldiers or the temple guards sounding different calls. Now, with the Romans, this was called the Galicinium and would have probably been referring to the blast at around midnight and three in the morning. With the priests, it would have been a call involved with rousing the temple priests much later in the morning. But there would need to be two of them. But, you know, there's a linguistic problem with this. Although the English translations generally say the rooster, um... There's no definite article in Greek. Okay, so there's no like a, the, and, you know, that's a, that's a definite article. You know, as, and we would expect to see one if it was referring to a scheduled and otherwise named event. In any event, we can theorize, but what we cannot do is give any definitive answer. And, you know, it's full moon. So, um, a lot of stuff is like that. You know, we'll survive. Either way, Peter would be, would completely disown Yeshua before sunrise. And that's the real bottom line thing to take away from this and not roosters versus, you know, um, trumpet calls and all that stuff. Um, 
31. Some people just like, they like drama, okay? <laughs> Context gets rid of a lot of the drama and the urban legend and all that stuff. Um, verse 31, but he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So Peter's response to Yeshua's prophetic utterance in the form of a vow is nothing short of shocking if you really think about it. He's literally calling Yeshua a false prophet. Although I believe it was probably a knee-jerk reaction to the attack on his honor, and especially as the designated leader of this young group. Honor was more important than money in the ancient world, and families rose and fell with their reputation. It was like the ancient form of your credit rating, and someone with a low honor wasn't a leader for long, couldn't feed their family for long, had no standing in any way for long, and neither did their immediate family. Yeshua was attacking, I mean, he was attacking the core of Peter's existence and self-worth and community worth in front of an audience. And, you know, of course, as we will see in a few weeks, Peter didn't just cave publicly. He caved to pressure from the lowest of the low. Not only a servant, with a, but a girl with absolutely no power in the world. It could hardly have been any worse than it was. Uh, next week, we will be talking about the prayer in Gethsemane. Oh, my gosh. Crazy stuff. And I've got a lot of stuff to actually teach you that's really, really cool about Gethsemane and whether there was a garden and what the word garden could mean. And we're going to talk about archaeology, which is always fun. Well, it's not always fun, but it will be. It's going to be really interesting, I promise. And as always, I will link you the article so that you can um, read it for yourself because it's it's pretty cool. So anyway, now, now I'm left with like 10 seconds uh, to make up, but uh, <laughs> I will see you next week so that uh, we can talk about the failure of all the disciples in the garden.